0: Welcome everyone to episode 69 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean, coming at you solo today. I'll hold off on any Patreon shoutouts until Chloe's back with me next week and jump straight into things. The case we're discussing today contains extreme violence and discussion of drug use. Some of the content is difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today I've got part three of the Melbourne gangland killings for you all, and as I said in the midweek interlude, we're going to see a serious escalation in the bloodshed as Carl Williams solidifies his crew and Benji Venuman rises to the top of a pile of trigger happy hitmen for hire on Melbourne's streets. 28th of December, 2002. Keilor, Victoria. Mark Smith had served 13 years for killing a man on a Craigieburn construction site in 1987. That was a long time ago, and he'd done his time. But if the rumours were true, Mark hadn't done all of his killing. Word on the grapevine was, Mark had accepted a contract recently from a chubby, bubbly upstart from Melbourne's northwestern suburbs, A bloke who was making some serious waves in the drug business. Carl Williams. And the contract he'd accepted was to kill Jason Moran. But now Mark had changed his mind. He wasn't going to go through with it for whatever reason. Jason Moran would live to fight another day. Lucky for Jason, not so much for Mark. Mark Smith survived the attempt on his life as he was shot in the driveway by an unknown assailant who'd been ordered by Carl Williams to take him out. Whether he'd taken money for the job or just indicated a willingness, we don't know. What we do know is that Mark Smith left for Queensland in the time after this. Word had it that Mark Smith wasn't the first bloke to accept the Jason Moran job from Carl. Victor Pierce, the notorious armed robber and accused Wall Street police shooter, was another. Whether there was any truth to that remains to be seen, but the fact was Victor had been knocked just six months earlier and Carl Williams had a new attack dog. Andrew Benji Venjeman was now spending the best part of his days with a new best mate, despite him allegedly accepting a contract from Jason through his Carlton crew connection to off Carl. Way Benji told it, he'd gotten his way into the roof cavity of Carl's house one night and was primed to do the job, when he heard Roberta singing to their daughter Dakota, putting her to bed. Benji knew then he couldn't kill Carl. Others might think that the lure of easy drug money on offer from the likes of Tony Mockbell, who Benji had recently met, and his friend Carl, spoke louder than Roberta's singing voice. Whatever the case, Benji had his foot in their camp now, and it wouldn't be long until he put his skills to use. Skills he'd been building up since childhood. Andrew Veneman or Andrew Benjamin? Take your pick. Apparently, Benji was legally both names and had identification to back it up. When the cops pulled him over, he was Andy Benjamin. When he was at home, playing the good Greek boy, he was Andrew Veneman. To all others, and especially his criminal associates, he was simply Benji. Born in November of 1975 to parents Apollo and Mariana, Benji was one of three children to the couple. They'd immigrated from Cyprus in 1970. Apollo gaining employment as a welder at the Sunshine Harvester Works. While Greek culture ruled at home, Mariana was mindful of raising all of the kids in the Australian way. Both Benji and his brother Steve went to Greek school every Saturday and spent some time as altar boys at St Andrew's Greek Orthodox Church. Otherwise, they were left to be Aussie boys and enjoy making friends in the Sunshine area. We know the crew that Benji fell in with, and from a young age... He felt that the local police singled him out due to his diminutive size. Never one to be pushed around, Benji's attitude was cemented at quite a young age. He didn't like the police and he didn't rat anyone out. He proved that when he and his crew hijacked a truckload of cigarettes one time. Benji, bold as ever, was the only one of the crew to not wear a mask. He was arrested with the cigarettes stored at his home but refused to cooperate for a reduced sentence. Instead, copping a hiding from the police. Benji had taken up boxing by this time and was said to possess a lot of natural talent in the sport. A local boxing trainer, Johnny Sheeder, offered to take Benji under his wing and train him if he left the gangster bullshit at the door. He didn't. Instead, he missed his chance to compete in the flyweight division at the Commonwealth Games, serving his time for the cigarette heist with sealed lips instead. It halfway ended his boxing career, but only bolstered his reputation within the criminal underbelly of sunshine. The knockout blow to Benji's boxing journey came in 1998, when a motorcycle crash left him with a smashed up knee, and he was unable to compete as he'd done before. Andrew the Vice Veneman was now just Benji, but he had more dash and bravado than blokes twice his size, especially when he began taking steroids to bulk up. But he didn't mix that with taking his own product and drinking too much. Benji, like his sunshine counterparts, had learnt many lessons from Scarface and other similar movies. One he'd taken to heart was not getting high on his own supply. That was for weaklings. He was happy to sell it to others, though. Benji fancied himself a problem solver, even if he was seemingly creating the problems himself half the time. His criminal record into his 20s had racked up a similar number of offences, ranging from possession to assault and arson, robbery and false imprisonment. Weighing 55 kilos, soaking wet, with a cropped head, cascading tribal tattoos down his arms and across his chest and a pout pasted across his face, Benji couldn't go a week without committing a crime. His violence only escalated into his twenties as he and his pal Dino Dibra began a marijuana cartel of sorts, and Benji moved into car rebirthing with his mentor PK. A disagreement with an associate often led to Benji pulling the trigger. No one disrespected him, yet he was happy to do so to others, sleeping with whoever he could, no matter what their circumstances. On one such occasion, when the partner of a woman in question called Benji's act doggish, Benji went on a rampage, hunting the man across town, before finally extorting $20,000 out of the man's parents' so Benji wouldn't kill their boy. He didn't stop there. When the family maxed out their mortgage, stumping up the funds to hold him off, Benji shot up their house before finally locating the man and shooting him in the legs and buttocks. It was a message to others that he was to be feared, respected, and this was what happened to those who crossed him. His mate, Dino Dibra, found this out too, and it was rumoured his old mentor, PK, had learnt the same. Benji's ambition had moved beyond sunshine, As the year 2000 rolled along, Benji had made his way into the folds of the Carlton crew, a long-time ambition of his. He told friends he'd be working alongside the likes of Mick Gatto and Mario Condello in years to come. His friends might have laughed if they didn't know Benji's determination. The sole reason he'd gotten into the boxing game, Benji said, was because all of the big names went to the big fights. But that line had ended for Benji when his knee had given out. He needed a new way in now and he found it through the cousin of a senior Carlton crew member who worked at a factory in Sunshine. This place made cheap odds and ends for $2 shops. Benji did the job for an entire year, just to get an inroad. His dash and bold spirit made an impression on Mick Gatto, a consummate networker in his line of work, and he extended the hand of friendship to Benji. Benji did some odd jobs for the crew, reportedly repossessing motor vehicles from languishing debtors. Mick also offered him labouring work on construction sites too, but Benji didn't want that kind of work. He considered himself a freelancer in other more specialised areas. He wanted the big bucks. And as much as he respected Mick, the pair even bordering on a father-son type relationship as time went on, the big money just wasn't there to be made. Mick and his associates even helped Benji out one night at the men's gallery when bouncers refused him entry. Mick and his friends, who were dining nearby, popped down to help sort things out. The whole thing ended with a profuse apology to Benji from the club's owner. If it was purely the money, we don't know. Maybe Benji didn't like what he saw that summer's day when Tony Mockbell had the crap kicked out of him. Maybe Benji thought Mick hadn't done enough or anything at all. It mightn't have been his fight, but to let the guy get his head kicked in like that? Benji had gotten to know Tony and now Carl. They were great blokes and the money was there, lots of it. And he liked Roberta and her kids. Roberta would later say that her favourite day of the week was when Benji picked up the kids from school and brought them home to give them a bath. Carl, who was either out having it off with other women or driving with his mates, consuming equal parts, speed and red rooster, couldn't have cared less. It was a perfect setup for him. When their hillside home was shot up one night, Carl, unfazed, simply left Roberta and the girls at home and rented apartments for his growing crew of killers in the city – where they were free to party and screw around all day and all night. Benji, his new best mate, was a welcome addition, and Benji saw the potential to become more than just a trigger man, a business partner, perhaps. Carl's crew of hired hands was growing rapidly, alongside his delusions of grandeur and rampant drug use, perhaps only matched by his love of takeaway food. The Morans were slipping. Jason had just returned from overseas after Lewis had thrown him a holiday. And now Carl, Victor, Benji and co. were surveilling him, tracking his every move so they could make their move at the right time. Jason was like a cat on a hot tin roof, and Lewis was doing nothing about it. They only appeared willing to part with half the amount Carl was for paying for a professional hit. The cash simply wasn't there with the Morans, not like what Carl had promised his guns for hire. And that's most likely why Benji jumped ship after originally accepting a contract from the Morans to take Carl out. Benji had inadvertently done Carl a couple of favours already by offing PK and Victor Pierce. Carl could take PK's market share, and Victor had threatened to knock Carl at his own wedding in the year 2000. It made sense to now start getting paid for it. There were others vying for work too, Carl's trusted runner, Victor Brinkat, and Thomas Henschel, a glasses-wearing wheelman. And then there was Tony. If Carl was the Premier, because he ran this state, then Tony Mockbell was the Prime Minister. And there was plenty of money for Benji in politics, even if his dad Apollo didn't approve of his new direction. Benji, his anger palpable, just put a gun to his old man's mouth and told him to mind his own business. Across town, another angry man Carl and Tony had begun doing business with was causing a stir Nikolai Radev. Nick, the Russian Radev, who was actually Bulgarian, had come to Australia in 1980 with nothing but the shirt on his back. In 1981, he married a woman named Sylvia. She was a hairdresser. But it was a marriage of convenience for Nick to get his citizenship, he'd later tell Sylvia. Nick spent his first couple of years working at a fish and chip shop in Doveton, in Melbourne's outer southeast, and then a pizza shop. But even a pizza shop didn't have enough dough for Nick Radev. The former wrestler wanted the big bucks, and after 1983, He wouldn't record another single day of work or pay another cent in tax. With a violent reputation from his days in Bulgaria, Nick went about making associations through Melbourne's Russian organised crime factions before moving into drug trafficking. He was first charged in 1985 for drug trafficking, his Melbourne jail time, like a holiday compared with the Bulgarian prison conditions he'd experienced in his younger days. A string of offending followed – all interspersed with waves of violence, assault, threats to kill, blackmail, extortion, firearms and drug offences, armed robbery, you name it, Nikolai Radev had done it. Into the 90s, Nick began trafficking heroin as it experienced somewhat of a boom. As his expensive tastes grew, so did his quench for more money and violence. He tortured an associate one time for a cut of his earnings, causing him to flee Australia for his native Turkey, fearing for his life. He also raped a rival one time in front of his wife and child as a pure thrill and power move. Soon after, he plotted to blow up a convenience store. A clear love for explosions saw him later firebomb a rival drug dealer's car too. Willie Thompson, his name was. Someone will come to know. In 1998, Nick and his associate Sam Zayat were charged with a brutal home invasion where they beat a 71-year-old man and tied his 5-year-old granddaughter to a bed. His brutality knew no ends. Nick was on the up and up in the drug business and well known to police as a standover man and drug dealer with an obvious penchant for violence and torture. It even caused an arresting officer of his one time named Ben Archbold a huge amount of stress with constant threats and intimidation which ultimately led to his resignation. Ben eventually went on to become a contestant in the first series of Australia's Big Brother incidentally while Nick Radev was pursuing his own fortune and glory. He'd rented a place in Brighton for his de facto partner and her child, but he didn't live there. He bounced around, paying cash for everything, wearing head-to-toe Versace outfits in the vicinity of $20,000, watches valued at a similar amount, a black Mercedes worth $100,000, and a gobful of porcelain and precious metal teeth worth over fifty dollars into the early 2000s, and Nick Radev had graduated from small-time and dangerous to mid-level and feared, and he wanted more. He seemed untouchable these days, being connected to a string of murders where several victims died of heroin hot shots. No charges ever stuck, of course. He'd hired Muscle now, a former kickboxer was his bodyguard, And he'd risen to the top of a drug syndicate, small-time dealers who worked in league with one another, sharing cooks, suppliers and resources. But it wasn't enough for Nick. He'd recently been doing business with Tony Mockbell and Carl Williams, using them as suppliers. But recently, some of the product hadn't been up to scratch, far as Nick could tell. The speed Carl's cook had been producing had clearly been cut with something. Caffeine was his best guess. Nick wanted to meet the cook and discuss the issues, come to an understanding. At least, that's what he told Carl, Tony and George Williams. Their cook, also named George, George Peters, would be made available to discuss the matter. They'd clear the air, no worries, and a meeting was scheduled. But clearing the air wasn't Nikolai Radev's intention – his end game was to abduct George Peters and take him to a remote farm and force him to produce speed and ecstasy for him 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It was a bold plan that left Nick Radev short-sighted. Carl and co had plans of their own. Nikolai Radev got word the meeting was on at the Middle Brighton Baths Cafe. Carl, George and allegedly Tony Mockbell were all there and met with Nick to discuss his grievances. From here... They'd all go down to Queen Street, Coburg, where they'd meet Peter's to chat about the product quality. Nick arrived in Queen Street as discussed and was walking across the road when he decided to double back and grab a cigar from his Mercedes convertible. He spoke with a couple of colleagues who'd travelled with him in their own car in a convoy of sorts before a small red Holden Vectra rounded the corner. His colleagues, his car, his clothes and his money were no use – as the Vectra pulled up and the occupants unloaded a flurry of gunshots into Nikolai Radev. Riddled with bullets from head to toe, he died there in the street next to the car he'd paid cash for. His friends, later named as Damien Kosu and Alfonso Traglia, were unable to identify the gunman. His business associates, being Carl, George and possibly Tony, were also unable to help police. Nor was Benji Venuman, who'd seemingly been on the Williams payroll of late. For the time being, it was a mystery who'd offed the violent Bulgarian drug lord, but over time, a possible truth would surface, and like many of Carl's plans, it centred on him paying for a result. It was alleged that Carl had learned of Nick Radev's speed cook kidnapping plan in the time prior to setting up this meeting, and he'd he this by networking with the Bulgarian's friends, and later allegedly paying one or more of them $50,000 to switch allegiances. Nick had been warned that there was a target on his back, but he thought he was bulletproof and that his pals wouldn't deceive him. He was wrong. The runner, Victor Brincat, and Benji Veniaman were later named as the gunman and driver respectively, the Red Holden Vectra said to be very similar to the car owned by George Williams at this time, but no charges were ever laid. It was the first move in a brutal hostile takeover the Williams Syndicate had launched. Nikolai Radev's house was combed through for cash by his friends and associates in the time after this, many feeling owed a share of his profits. He had enough left though to be buried in a $35,000 gold-plated coffin, which took 12 pallbearers to lift. Karl wasn't sure what he liked more, the coffin or the money he stood to make with yet another rival and threat out of the way. By early 2003, Jason Moran had returned to his home in Ascot Vale, having bummed around London for the best part of nine months. The holiday was courtesy of his father, Lewis, for the time he'd recently served, but it looked more like a way for him to stay alive just a little while longer. Jason was living on memories, those of his brother and those of his father from days gone by. Maybe he'd organised for the Dibri killing to avenge Mark. But they all knew that wasn't the case now, it was Carl, and Lewis either didn't care or was too cheap to pay for it again. Those close to the Morans, like Bert Rout, thought they and Jason in particular looked weaker than ever, living a suburban pantomime with a 9mm stuffed down the front of his pants. Jason was doing school drop-offs, trading verbal barbs with Roberta, who'd taken to laying her hands on Tricia Moran recently. Jason was fielding calls from Carl too, since his return, late at night, threatening. He'd had his chance to square up, but he hadn't taken it, one time walking into an Essendon cafe to see Carl and George sitting there, before he turned on a dime and walked out of the venue. Another time, when Carl and Victor Brincat had been tailing him, Jason had popped the hatch of the vehicle he was a passenger in and fired off a few rounds at the pair. From 20 metres away, he missed everything. Carl, meanwhile, back in the car with Victor, had nothing but a tyre iron and a screwdriver when he spotted Jason and ordered his henchmen to drive after him so they could do the job. The surveillance on Jason was never-ending for Carl. It was his obsession. Thomas Henschel and Victor Brinkat were constantly on the job looking for him, but Jason remained elusive. Carl was beginning to wonder if Benji was as reliable as promised. He'd asked his precocious little bulldog to lure Jason a few times now, but each time Benji couldn't get it done. Carl was now wondering if Benji actually wanted to at all, or if he'd gone double agent back to his Carlton crew buddies. He wasn't sure if Benji could be trusted. He'd heard Benji had taken the cash to kill him once too, but hadn't gone through with it. And with his name on the police radar now too, using Benji just wasn't a good idea at this stage. After the murder of Nikolai Radev, another gangster slain in the Melbourne streets, there was no doubt to the public that there was a gangland war of sorts going on, and you'd be forgiven for thinking police hadn't done much to this point, being up to their neck in their own corruption problems. Sweeping changes came in the time after this in 2003, when the new Chief Commissioner Christine Nixon ordered the formation of the Piranha Task Force – around round-the-clock operation combining the investigations into many of these gang-related murders into one central focus point. It took some time, but Vic Pol had finally realised their intelligence and knowledge of Melbourne's criminal underworld wasn't up to scratch. They'd been overtaken by the Crims themselves and left with no idea as to who did what, when or why. Under the watchful eye of Assistant Commissioner Simon Overland, the Piranha Task Force got to work, tracing the associations and various criminal factions, surveilling and bugging and putting the wheels in motion to cripple some of the big players' finances. Blissfully unaware of this, Carl Williams had only one thing on his mind at this time, killing Jason Moran. If Jason was running scared, moving house on the reg, he was still tooled up with guns and equally equipped mates by his side and wasn't projecting it. He could never admit it even if he was, And he remained at the helm of what police believed was still one of the top drug factions within the state at this time. That had all changed when Victor Brinkat's surveillance paid dividends and he told Carl that Jason was regularly attending Ozkick, which is a kids' football clinic, at Cross Keys Reserve in Essendon. It was a family affair, minivans and children everywhere. It didn't seem like the ideal place for this to go down. Or did it? Jason was extremely paranoid otherwise, At least at the Ozkick clinic, in the family setting, he'd potentially let his guard down. It was better than other plans Carl and his crew had discussed. One involved Carl cramming himself into the Moran's wheelie bin overnight before bursting out and shooting Jason in the morning as he walked to his car. Another plan had Benji luring Jason to a park for a meeting, at which time Victor would be casually pushing a pram past them, dressed as a woman, before unleashing the cache of weapons he had inside the pram where the baby would usually be. Neither was a viable alternative. On the 21st of June 2003, Jason Moran and his minder for the day, a family associate named Pascal Pat Barbaro, were sitting in their blue Mitsubishi people mover van, the usual Sunday morning Auskick clinic had played out around them and now, around 20 to 11 in the morning, was winding up. Crammed into the rear seat of the car were at least five kids, Jason's twins, who were six at this time, and his dearly departed brother Mark's kids. A running man wearing a balaclava appeared by the driver's side window, his intention unmistakable, as he levelled a sawn-off shotgun through the window. The gunman fired at point-blank range and, the shots blasting through the glass and into Jason Moran's head and back as he instinctively turned away. The gunman then unloaded a number of rounds from a pistol into the car, hitting and killing Pat Barbaro in the passenger seat. The shocked children in the back seat, splattered in their father and uncle's blood, sat silently as the masked gunman dropped the sawn off and sprinted from the scene. The tale of Jason Moran and Pat Barbaro's murders at the Auskick Clinic in broad daylight in front of children was a huge story when it broke. and also broke all the criminal codes, far as those concerned saw it. The way this went down in public in such brutal circumstances was something the criminal underworld in Melbourne hadn't seen before. Judith Moran arrived at the scene in the time after this, an understandably distraught mother, Lead detectives, Sergeants Charlie Bazina and Roland Legg, were soon there as well. Meanwhile, Carl was across town getting a blood test for his cholesterol levels as his hired human thoroughbred, Victor Brincat, darted across the footbridge over the Mooney Ponds Creek to the waiting getaway van driven by Thomas Henschel, a bloke commonly referred to as the driver or goggles when his name was suppressed. Although they didn't know it for sure at the time, police sure suspected that Carl Williams was behind this. The evidence would take time, but the sawn-off, eerily similar to the one used in Mark Moran's murder, and CCTV of the getaway van from the nearby Cross Keys Hotel would start the hunt for the killers. The Williams clan decided to celebrate in the time after this. Carl heading to his mum and dad's to pop some champagne – before the entire crew went to the flower drum restaurant that night, drinking themselves legless and toasting to Jason's departure. Meanwhile, the Morans had lost another son, more kids had lost their father and a wife, her husband. Not that Jason Moran displayed any inkling of potentially changing his ways, his life and actions to this point had never looked like going in a different direction. Still, the shocking reality of it all was just that. Jason was buried at the same church as his pal Alphonse Gangitano in the days after his death. But for Carl Williams, the end of Jason Moran was just the beginning. What had originally been a vendetta against two brothers for shooting him had turned into something else. There was a chance to control all the action now. Andy's and his crew were flying on their own gear and the proceeds from selling it, leaving Roberta and the kids at home. He and Benji got a secure apartment in the city and enjoyed the fruits of their labour night after night. He benched Victor Brinkat and Thomas Henschel for the next job when Victor bumped into Carl and Benji at a South Melbourne nightclub. Benji leaned in and whispered to his co-trigger man that they needed help on their next job. Victor said they were mad, it was too close to their last job, only weeks earlier. So it was Benji who took up the contract solo. Willie Thompson and Michael Marshall were mates both former kickboxers and bouncers, but the pair weren't well known to those who didn't frequent the nightclub scene. Willie sold lollipop vending machines to nightclubs nowadays, and Michael, or Mick as he was known, sold hot dogs from a van on dark nights around the clubs. Business had gone well for the pair. Mick had a two-storey home on the corner of Williams Road and Joy Street in South Yarra, and Willie was a partner in a local business worth $150,000 and had near a quarter of a mill sitting in a Greek bank account. Not bad for a hot dog vendor and a lollipop vendor. Clearly, they had other business interests, and that lay in a common speed cook named Murray, who the pair shared quite amicably. The proceeds of their dealings saw Mick and Willie living lifestyles that seemed beyond their means. Willie's Honda S2000 sports car worth over $80,000 was evidence of that. Until early 2003, the pair had always gotten along well in the business sense. That was until Willie went to purchase some chemicals from some associates in Sydney, $400,000 he'd gone up there with, of both his and Mick's money, and returned with nothing, no money and no chemicals. Willie said he'd been ripped off, but Mick didn't believe his old mate, and a rift formed between the pair. Willie's friendship with another drug dealer, however, was seemingly blossoming. Carl Williams had ordered two 25-kilogram drums of pseudoephedrine from Willie off the back of their recent bonding. Willie, who'd once been an associate of the Moran family and potentially Nick Radev, had recently been feeding information back to Carl on Jason's whereabouts. The pair were doing business now, and presumably, Willie had backed the right horse. But to Carl, Willie was a loose end. He suspected Willie had been passing back false information and perhaps trying to line Carl up for the Morans instead. He couldn't be trusted, and he had assets the car wanted. On the 21st of July 2003, Willie, who was 39 at this time and living in Port Melbourne, regularly trained at extreme jiu-jitsu and grappling on Warrigal Road in Chadston. He left the gym one evening around 9.30pm, said goodbye to a training partner, then walked to his car and got behind the wheel. Across the road in the car park of a Red Rooster, two men in a stolen Ford sedan crept across Warrigal Road and boxed Willie in, blocking his exit with a T-bone manoeuvre. Both of the men got out and fired handguns at Willie, a volley of bullets smashing through the glass and killing him. A bullet was later found in the wall of a nearby bookshop, and to police, it certainly didn't seem to be a clean hit. But it did have the same level of planning that had gone into recent similar jobs. Nick Radev would have been an obvious suspect in Willie Thompson's murder. He'd firebombed his car in the past. But Radev was dead himself nowadays, unless an associate had planned to finish the job. Carl seemed an unlikely suspect at the time, but it was later suggested he ordered the hit with the intention to steal a large amount of Willie's chemicals for his own purposes while simultaneously paying him back for his perceived treachery in lagging back to the Morans. The Trigger Men have been suggested as two of Carl's crew who hadn't seemingly been used to this point, but may have acted under directions from Benji. Carl, watertight as ever, made sure he was up on the Gold Coast when all of this went down, though. He returned soon thereafter, though, so he and Victor could try and extort some money out of Murray, Willie and Mix cook. Carl sympathised with Murray, noting he'd do everything he could to catch Willie's killer, 1st, Murray had to make good on the $900,000 Willie owed. He couldn't muster that much, but later gave Carl $150,000, an investment in his future perhaps. One bump in the road Carl didn't foresee though, was the outrage Willie's murder would cause one of his closest allies, Tony Mockbell. Turns out Willie and Tony went to school together and were on amicable terms. Knowing friends of friends... Word on the grapevine was that Mick Marshall had offed Willie after their fallout earlier in the year. Carl and Benji were quick to spread this rumour, and when Carl and Victor met with Tony at a Red Rooster in Brunswick sometime after this, Tony was livid. He wanted Mick Marshall on a silver platter, it was alleged, and he offered Carl $300,000 to get it done. It was big money, if it's true, and to Carl, murder was just another income stream now. He could easily organise it and not get his own hands dirty. Victor, however, was perplexed at the situation as they sat there chowing down a few pineapple fritters. Carl had organised the Willie Thompson hit, but Tony didn't seem to know that. He was convinced, as the rumour had it, that Mick Marshall had done it. Those who knew Mick Marshall might have thought it odd, as Mick was no killer. But that didn't deter Tony, who, it was later alleged, though never proven, offered a contract to Carl to get rid of his mate's killer. Victor, who still hadn't been paid for the Jason Moran job, was getting a little testy. He'd had the world promised to him and was getting drip-fed bits and pieces. Carl had set him up in a lavish apartment, but then he got an eviction notice. Carl then gave him 50k, which Victor promptly punted away. Then there was the promise of a new flat in a property development Carl had going in Frankston. The way Carl saw it, he needed to keep Victor sweet so he wouldn't renege on the new Marshall job and rat him out on the Willie Thompson hit. Victor had a place, some cash, and was seeing Roberta's sister Michelle now too, so he was sweet for now. Meanwhile, Carl and Benji had other matters to attend to, a blast from Benji's past, soon to be in his present once again. Mark Malia was devastated when his friend Nikolai Radev had been gunned down on Queen Street Coburg earlier in April of 2003. Now it was August, Mark was still trying to find out who killed his friend, The former Sunshine Boy had branched out in a different direction, like all his school buddies had. Two were now dead, Dino, who'd always been a nut, and PK, who they'd all looked up to once. Johnny was nowhere to be found these days, but Benji, he'd moved on from the Carlton crew and was spending his days and nights with Carl Williams and co, and the word on the street was, they'd done Nick. Mark was furious, but also hyper-aware, wisely heading north to Queensland for a while after his friend's passing. Upon his return, Carl caught wind that the former Sunshine Boy was angry at him and Benji and wanted his revenge. An initially reluctant Mark Malia noted that it was best they didn't meet when Carl first made contact. If he saw no one, and no one saw him, no one would get hurt. Carl, ever the friendly salesman, expressed his condolences and sympathies to Mark, assuring him that he and Benji had nothing to do with Nick's murder. They were similarly outraged and wanted his killers found and dealt with. Mark agreed to meet the pair at a seafood restaurant at Southgate, somewhere very public, and no one else was to come. Carl and Benji employed a good cop, bad cop routine, with Carl playing the reassuring and friendly guy who had no beef with Mark, but his former childhood pal Benji went the other way, delivering a menacing whisper to Mark across the table that if they heard he was blaming them for the Bulgarians' murder again, he'd kill the entire Malia family. The threat was enough to bring Mark to tears, but he wasn't silly. He'd brought a few heavies to sit off from the meeting, something they'd all agreed not to do. Mark tried to keep the peace, saying he just wanted to know who did Nick and why. Carl diffused the tension again, saying they were all sweet and would work together to find the killers. Benji, meanwhile maintained his petulant, threatening scowl from across the table. In the time after this, when the rumours persisted that Mark Malia was still shopping for a shooter to get Carl and Benji, Carl clicked his fingers, doing what he did best, organising and manipulating with money, or at least, the promise of it. As he'd supposedly done with Nick Radev, Carl was again alleged to have paid one of Mark Malia's associates $50,000 to lure him to a property in Lawler, here, a group of seven men, led by an exuberant Benji Venuman, tortured Mark Malia, potentially with a soldering iron and other instruments. They wanted his money, his chemicals, and the details of any debts his dealers owed him, along with any information on Nick Radev's leftovers, be it cash, drugs, or chemicals too. Mark Malia told them all he could. How much that was, we can't be sure, but we know the men then choked him to death with a length of rope. They then shoved Mark's body into a wheelie bin, doused it with petrol before setting it alight. They dumped the wheelie bin in a drain in West Sunshine, where crews were later called to find Mark's charred remains. Relatives later identified Mark Malia by a distinctive tattoo that was just visible on his torso. Carl was surprised at how Benji chose to kill his old school pal, who was particularly callous. Still, Carl was able to put it behind him, knowing that retribution for Nick Radev's death was now in his rearview, view. Another loose end remained, however, and a profitable one at that. Carl had Victor Brinkat and Thomas Henschel surveil Mick Marshall for around one month. They learned his comings and goings, his routine, his life, all surrounding his home in South Yarra. Unbeknownst to him, Mick had made some enemies, enemies who thought he'd done something he hadn't, and others who knew that very fact and wanted it kept quiet. On the 25th of October 2003, Carl, Victor Brincat, and Thomas Henschel met to discuss the viability of the job. Henschel had a problem. In the white van they'd been using, the same one they'd used in Jason Moran's murder, he'd found something. It was behind the brake light and he'd ripped it out upon noticing it was a bug, a tracker or listening device for sure. Carl, high in his own fumes and Victor, keen for his next wad of $50,000 cash, was still keen to proceed. Henschel, not so much. But he was outvoted. The job went ahead. Carl and Brinkat thought Henschel had simply gone cold. Not that the police were actually onto them. They certainly hadn't been to this point, so what was different now? Task Force Piranha, for one, was different now. The newly established task force had, for the first time, caught up to the criminals and gotten ahead. They'd managed to find the source of the Williams crew's clean getaway cars – a rebirthing workshop run by a backyard mechanic who Henschel knew, and they'd bugged a number of these cars. Police had been surveilling both Brincat and Henschel as long as they'd been tailing Mick Marshall, not at a street level, but certainly via listening devices and GPS trackers. And on this day in October, police knew something was on. They just didn't know what, or potentially who, and they wouldn't find out in enough time to stop it. At 6.25pm, Mick Marshall arrived home in Joy Street, South Yarra, having just been to the bakery to buy some bread rolls, stock for his evening's work on the hot dog stand. Inside his Toyota Hilux was his five-year-old son. As Mick stood beside his car, a balaclava-wearing runner pulled up behind him and fired a shot. It missed. Mick lunged at the gunman, who'd actually fallen over on the wet, slippery road with the recoil from the first missed shot. But even on his backside, he was too fast. A further three shots struck Mick Marshall and the gunman, sprayed in his victim's blood, ran back to the getaway vehicle. Mick's terrified son ran to his front gate, screaming for help as his dad lay motionless in the street. His mother came out seconds later, having heard what she thought to be a car backfiring moments earlier. She saw Mick lying face down on the road and ran over to him. He passed away around three hours later in the hospital. Victor rang Carl when the job was done using the not-so-clever code phrase, that horse has just been scratched. Carl grunted in acknowledgement, neither of them realising that all of the horse races had actually concluded that day. Within hours, Victor Brinkat and Thomas Henschel were arrested for Michael Marshall's murder at the Elstonwick Hotel, the first strike that Piranha made, but not soon enough to save Michael Marshall's life. Carl hadn't kept up with the payments he'd been promising to his hired hands. Now, two who he owed were in police custody. It was his most unwise move to date, and his future moves wouldn't get much better. While speaking with Victor Brinkat over the phone in Barwon Prison some weeks later, Carl was recorded making threats against a Piranha Task Force member's girlfriend. This task force member was Detective Sergeant Stuart Bateson, who in part served as inspiration for Roger Cors's fictional Steve Owen in the dramatised Underbelly series. On the 17th of October 2003, Carl Williams was arrested in a dramatic fashion as he was pulled over by police and told to put the handbrake on and get out. Carl, feeling he was being set up, refused to move stating later that if he'd gone for the handbrake, they would have shot him and said he was going for a gun. He ended up crawling out onto the nature strip, at which point an arresting officer whispered to him, We all know who you are and what you've been up to, and we're coming for you. You won't know when, but we're coming. Remember that, smartass. Carl was also arrested for making threats to kill Detective Bates and himself. He later denied the allegations offering various explanations for what he really meant, including that he wanted to simply fuck Detective Basin's missus, not kill her, and that other throwaway comments were simply jokes. Carl got bail two weeks later. In the meantime, Benji had been looking after Roberta and the girls, and Roberta was even wearing a picture of him inside her necklace locket. Benji, she'd later say, was her soulmate. Carl was more like her housemate. What Carr was for sure at this time was a media spectacle. He was photographed being arrested, heard calling in to speak with Darren Hinch on the radio, where he denied being a drug lord and ordering the likes of Benji to conduct hits. His picture was being splashed across the tabloids, his red polo jeans jumper and diamond-studded Anastasia-style sunglasses on display, with a dishevelled and notably underdressed Benji often in tow, wearing sandals and a baseball cap. In the face of the media frenzy, where it was apparent the number of his associates who'd been gunned down in the past 12 months was improbably coincidental, Carl fobbed comments off with flippant replies and a cheeky smile. But one thing was for sure, despite the Christmas season fast approaching, 2003 wasn't done for Carl Williams. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Talk of Mick Gatto being next on Carl's hit list came to light when some of Carl's associates had been arrested. Benji, police were told, had plans to knock both Mick and Lewis Moran. The Carlton crew, in particular Mick Gatto and Mario Condello, didn't consider this their war. Mick didn't dabble in the drug trade, it wasn't for him, and the way he saw it, Carl had a right to retaliate for what had been done to him, eye for an eye type of thing. Not that he or Mario were okay with their friend, Lewis, having both of his sons killed, that was a tragedy, obviously, but this wasn't their war, and it wasn't Graham Kinneborough's either. Still, they had to have felt like their hands were being forced in some part, especially in Graham's case. His past with the Morans and his pal Lewis in particular wasn't worth nothing. Everyone was upset at what had gone down, and possibly that Benji, who Mick had brought into the fold, was now running with the other side, being Carl's number one attack dog. Lewis Moran, whether incapable, unwilling, ignorant, or potentially a combination of all three hadn't done anything in retaliation for Jason's murder. Now he and associate Bert Rout had been arrested for drugs charges, a small trafficking offence. Lewis was behind bars and somewhat safe for now. Task Force Piranha had another operation on their agenda now, Operation Gatto. They now wanted Mick behind bars, apparently for his own good. But being a bit more savvy than the likes of Lewis, who was still getting pinched on minor drugs charges... Piranha had to dig deep to get something on Mick. Always affable, Mick let police do their job when they arrived with search warrants in hand. He simply asked for half an hour to get dressed and have a coffee before the search began, under observation of course. Piranha got the Australian tax office to audit Mick's assets, his house in Doncaster, holiday home in Sorrento, another two properties he had in Richmond and his share in a crane and scaffolding company. The ATO alleged that Mick hadn't lodged a return since 1989, so there was a lot of explaining to do around these assets. But try as they might, task force detectives were unable to get Mick behind bars, and he certainly wasn't going to be talking to them about anything he may or may not have known. Mick was adamant that this wasn't his war, he'd had contracts taken out on him before. Heck, even Tony Mokbel had allegedly offered 400k to have Nick Radev shoot him down in a hail of bullets after that beating he took. It never happened, probably in large part because the Bulgarian had wound up in a similar state himself. Mick wasn't into this, you shoot him and I'll shoot him in return bullshit. If someone wanted to see him, they knew where he was and he didn't need any police protection. Still, the current climate and pressure from within gave Mick concerns, perceived or real and he called his young pal Benji. He didn't want to hear that he'd been running with the Williams crew. It was all sweet, Benji said. He appreciated him checking in, his respect for Mick still evident. At this stage, it wasn't Benji who Mick needed to worry about, and he knew that, having given his old mate and father figure, the notorious leader of the Magnetic Drill Gang who he called Pa, a warning in recent times. Perhaps a long and relaxing holiday was on the cards for Graham Kinnebra, Mick may have suggested, but that wasn't the Munsters' style either. Graham Kinnebra was a bit of an enigma. It was said to be his complexion that had some sort of resemblance to Herman Munster, the monster in the TV comedy series. It was a nickname that stuck. No one really knew how he'd procured his wealth. He certainly didn't flaunt it. Graham dressed like a grandpa, wearing jeans, polos and simple jackets. But he sure had some cash behind him. He lived in Belmont Avenue in Kew, an affluent suburb in Melbourne's inner east surrounded by neighbours who were doctors, lawyers and stockbrokers. But he kept it low-key, driving an old Ford Falcon and dressing like he was going to bingo instead of La Porcella or the Flower Drum. He was happy to splash a bit of cash at his favourite restaurants though. Graham was a regular at the Flower Drum, once commenting that he'd spent around fifty grand on fried rice in his lifetime. It was rumoured he even had a steak in the place. While he claimed to still be a rigger, a dock worker, and certainly appeared that way, It was the widely held belief that the unassuming old-timer had been one of the country's best safecrackers back in his younger days. Graham's earlier criminal record had charges for dishonesty, bribery, possession of firearms, resisting arrest and assaulting police. But these were just the things he'd been caught for. Question was, what had he gotten away with? Described as a perfectionist when it came to carrying out his crimes... The Munster was alleged to have honed his safe-cracking skills in warehouses in Melbourne prior to the time of the Magnetic Drill Gang spree, and it was also alleged he'd shot another well-known thief named Steve Sellers after a job, when Sellers tried to claim a slice of the pie that Graham obviously thought he wasn't entitled to. Police had Graham pegged as not only the mastermind of the Magnetic Drill Gang, but for a couple of other notable thefts and crimes too. One was a gold bullion snatch in Queensland, another was one he actually got charged for, which was receiving stolen property. But the kicker here was this property was stolen from the home of Lindy Fox. It was Mrs Fox's pendant, quite a rare one, reports detailed. When police raided Graham's home at one stage, they found the pendant amongst a small amount of cash. But Graham, cunning as ever actually had another identical pendant made in Hong Kong when this happened, in order to raise doubt about the unique and rare nature of Mrs Fox's item, and this enabled him to beat the theft charge. Graham was also linked to a $225 million hash importation, with the so-called grandfather mob, and a cannabis resin importation, both charges and theories that wouldn't stick. But despite Graham wanting to stay out of the limelight, he'd end up getting dragged into it amidst the Melbourne gangland wars, and this was due to some of the friendships he'd made with some younger, hotter-headed individuals. Graham had been implicated in the 1998 murder of Alphonse Gangitano. No charges had been laid, but he'd been directly linked in a subsequent coronial inquest. Neighbours found the media attention Graham received since Gangitano's death hard to reconcile with the old bloke who, walked his fluffy white dog around. In retirement, he still fenced some stolen goods, but had mostly set up his kids with properties and spent the rest of his money on food, drink and travel. The spotlight bothered Graham Kennebra, and he just wanted to fade back into the shadows of his semi-retirement in his comfy suburban home. Paranoia, however, had set in, as it inevitably does with most who move in these circles, Graham was worried enough to begin carrying a pistol again, something he hadn't done since his younger days, but he still parked in his driveway and close to the street, not behind closed gates or in his garage, and his security camera setup had packed it in 12 months earlier. He hadn't bothered to get it fixed. Sometime after midnight on the 13th of December 2013, the Munster arrived home from a hearty dinner. He'd stopped to pick up a few groceries on the way. Parking his old Ford sedan in his driveway, Graham took a few steps while carrying his bag of groceries before a gunman opened fire on him from the shadows. Graham managed to get his own gun out and return fire with one shot, which lodged in the carport across the road, but by the time paramedics arrived at 12.07am, Graham Kinneborough was dead. News of his death shocked both family and friends, who'd held the wise old-timer in high regard and mourned his loss. In the end, it was his friendship with the Morans that was said to be the reason for his murder. Carl was understandably the prime suspect as the organiser of the Munsters hit, while the Victor Brinkat behind bars that left Benji as his number one gun. And Benji's alibi and his mobile phone pings had him near Taylor's Lakes at the time of the Munsters shooting, way across town. So if Carl had organised it, he'd used someone new. But not for surveillance. We'd later learn that Victor Brinkat had been carrying out surveillance on Graham Kinnebra since mid-2003, they knew all of his movements, and that he came home on Fridays around midnight like clockwork. Once the groundwork had been done, Carl contracted two guys, Stephen Aisling and Terence Blewett, to conduct the hit, giving them a down payment of 20k, a pair of handguns and 2 kilos of speed. A witness later told police that Carl had given the go-ahead on the Munster upon hearing that Lewis was locked up. Graham Kinnebra, according to Carl, was the next best thing. Stephen Aisling was later charged and convicted of Graham Kinnebra's murder in 2015 and Terence Blewett went missing long before this. His remains later discovered buried in a Thomastown junkyard, owned, allegedly, by a Carlton crew associate. But back in the present time... Carl and Benji denied having any knowledge of what happened to Graham Kinnebra. They didn't even know the bloke and had no reason to knock him. At Piranha HQ, the list of bodies was growing, and their intel suggested more would be on the way. At Carlton HQ, the list of suspects for Graham's murder was only short. Carl and Benji were right at the top. And as a result, a previously amiable father and son type relationship between Mick Gatto and Andrew Veneman would be put to the test as Mick asked for a meeting with his little bloke and Carl to clear the air. This wasn't meant to be Mick's fight, but now someone had made it personal. And it's at this meeting in Crown Casino, early 2004, where we'll resume next week, in part four of the Melbourne Gangland Killings. We'll be back with you all then. Between now and then, I will release another interlude mini-sode, but I will, in Chloe's absence, try and stump up a quick happy thought for you all, and it's quite simply the TV show Brooklyn 99. My wife and I have just watched the most recent season. I think it's season seven, and not everyone's cup of tea, I get that, but uh, it's a nice humorous break from the true crime, and uh, it just seems to be getting better and better, this show. It's aging like a, like a fine cheddar, maturing, although it's quite um, immature in nature, I suppose, so that's kind of ironic, but uh, <laughs> it's still a great show, and my happy thought for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcasts, Podcast, or you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page, the links in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus content, which there's a whole bunch of Blue Label episodes there, murder lounges, sneak previews, blooper reels. And we will have a special edition episode coming up soon, uh, which is going to be on none other than Mark Chopper Reed. So that will be good. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time.